Hello and welcome everyone to another episode of the Publisher Lab. I am Tyler Bishop. Alongside me today is uh, a voice that you will hopefully remember from a couple episodes ago. Whitney Wright joins me today. It's nice to be here again. Poor Shelby is out sick, but yeah. she'll hopefully be back next week. Yeah, she she came into the, the office the other day and I think we both had the same reaction, which is like, Girl, you're sick. <laughs> yeah, she's like, I'm cold, but I'm sweating. I'm like, that is, that is what a, a flu is. <laughs> that is a fever. You are you are experiencing a fever right now, and so uh, so that's fine. We'll we are gonna be able to accomplish this podcast today. I think without the help of Shelby, even though I think she probably will end up still editing this episode. Probably. So hopefully, you're feeling better, Shelby, as you're editing this and listening through it. Um, but I want to kind of jump in um, to some of the topics that we were going to kind of discuss today. I know you and I, normally Shelby kind of surprises me with these, but mm. you know, you and I kind of went over five different topics that we thought would be really good today. And you know, I want to start with the first one, which is uh, actually part of a report that we published here recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of parallels with a blog that I wrote, and it's kind of got like a uh, a clickbaity title a little bit. It says, What Websites That Triple Display Ad Revenue Have in Common? Uh, did you have a chance to, to either look at the report or read the blog? I did, yeah. I looked through um, both of them, actually. And um, mainly, the the main point that you were making is that revenue and traffic are related, but they're not necessarily equal. Um, and it was pretty impressive, some of the results from the um, publishers that were shared. Um, just major increases in EPMV um, and traffic increase... Um, ad revenue. Yeah, and I think that that the EPMV part is the part that I think is really important because I think you you really nailed it. You know, like um, you would think if you hear well, you look at fifty publishers and twenty of them in you know tripled their display ad revenue. What did those twenty publishers do? Um, you would say well, there's a really good chance that those are the publishers that just happen to triple their traffic, right? You triple mm-hmm. your traffic, the chances of your revenue. Um, doing the same are, are mm-hmm. probably pretty good. But that really wasn't the case. Almost all the publishers that did see revenue increases also saw traffic increases. All, but strangely, there was actually two publishers of that 20 that like actually didn't increase their traffic. Yeah, actually, I saw that. One was they lost 1%, so it's not a lot. And then the other one lost about 12%, which mm. again, is not a lot, but mm-hmm. they still didn't improve it. Uh, it's that EPMV number, that right. earnings per thousand visitors. So they're really just getting, uh, they're generating more revenue from the same amount of visitors mm-hmm. um, or more visitors, but in this case, the, the, the increase is significantly more, which I, which I think is interesting. It's something we talk a lot about mm-hmm. uh, here on this show. Yeah, um, I feel like I've written things on this and talked about like EPMV is the thing you need to pay the most attention to. Um, it just it better tracks. Um, user experience and the revenue from that um, it's just kind of this meeting in the middle of everything and it's really what's going to uh, make your site better and I think a lot of people focus on uh, you know we talk about this sometimes but people have a tendency to focus on I think a lot of times the wrong parts of um, of ads when it comes to ad revenue um, which is it becomes sort of counterintuitive but I actually think it's easier whenever you take out the fact that you know People really are concerned about demand sources, right? Like, mm-hmm. wh- you know, who is who is allowed to display and buy inventory on my site? Um, that must make a really big deal, right? That mm-hmm. those are the people that are buying. I want to make sure I have good buyers. That's how I'm going to make more money. Or the number of ads. Well, if I'm willing to put a thousand ads on my page, of course the revenue is going to mm-hmm. go up. 
But what we keep learning is that user experience is actually more important because you can jam a bunch of ads in, but if that causes people to bounce, um, then you're going to get less page views mm-hmm. and you're going to make less revenue off of all the page views. And then on top of that as well, it's like ads dilute each other. It's like right. supply and demand. I mean, it's pretty simple, right? Right. And we, we had a blog on that not too long ago. Yeah. Um, just that there is a tipping point for every website and it's different for every website. Um, you can add a bunch of advertisements, but there's going to be a point where people are going to start leaving more because they don't like your site. It's too ad, like too many ads everywhere. Um, it's slowing down the page. Um, and then they'll leave and then you'll have to keep adding more ads to keep making money. And it just is a downward spiral from there. And what's really interesting as well about that is it doesn't really matter what the demand source is sometimes, but ads will dilute each other. So let's pretend you have an ad at the top of the page and it's worth, let's say, a $1 CPM. That's low CPM, but it's a $1 CPM. And then you add two ads to the sidebar and maybe they get bids at 50 cents each. Um, and so you add another ad to the sidebar and advertisers bid on historical data. And so at first that fourth that that third ad in the sidebar is going to get you 50 cents. And so you've increased the total amount of revenue that that page earns. But over time, Advertisers are going to figure out that those ads are diluting each other. So the value of all those 50 cent CPMs that were in the sidebar are going to go down. And they may actually affect that $1 CPM at the top too. And so you have more ads, but you make less money off the total number of ads. Right. I mean, advertisers don't want, they want the least amount of competition as possible. And so if, um, you know, they're the only ad on the website, they are willing to bid for that spot. But, you know, as soon as there's four, you know, they don't, it's not as effective for them and um, they're going to bid less and the more ads there are, the less they're going to bid. And I think it becomes really hard to look at this uh, as a publisher on a like day-to-day, week-to-week basis because you, you just mentioned, you know, like if you're the only ad on the page, advertisers will bid more potentially, right? The problem with that is, is every, all bids are based on historical information, mm-hmm. right? So if I take all the ads off my site today and just leave one ad, um, I'm only going to be I'm going to lose a lot of revenue right. before I ever figure out like what is the maximum bid mm-hmm. there and so finding that balance is actually really hard because right. you've got to find it over time and for that you need a lot of data mm-hmm. uh, and that's obviously one of the things we specialize in but I thought one of the the other interesting things about the study was you know it would be really um, the cynic in me would be like well if 20 sites tripled the revenue, they're all probably the same type of website. Right. But there was really kind of six different buckets that everybody fell into. Mm-hmm. Tool and game, evergreen content, news, informational websites, uh, niche content like blogs and stuff like that, and then directory sites. So like, mm-hmm. it was really all over the map. That's a lot right. of diversity. Yeah, you know, and these audiences, um, besides the content, the audiences are all different as well. And so it's not just a specific... Um, category it's not even specific types of um public readers it's um just really all across the board which means that it's possible for any type of publisher then yeah and that you you nailed it um it that's what really makes it kind of unique is that um all those audiences are really different and speaking of the audience itself the other thing that i thought was a really interesting takeaway was we saw that engagement time uh pretty much tripled Mm -hmm. um uh, or in some cases at least doubled for the vast majority of the publishers um, that saw the r- increase in revenue. And that really speaks to that point we were talking about before about user experiences engagement really driving up the value of ad places on your site. So it's not the demand sources. It's not the, um, it's not the number of ads on the page. It really is kind of 
user experience is really driving up the value of a page to advertisers over time. Yeah. And you can kind of see how long that takes. Like I'm looking at the chart right now. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of the, we started looking at these publishers in January and you can see like they sort of top out in October uh -huh. and then it kind of like just kind of evens out. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that is, is that's really how long it can take a lot of times. You can see it's a linear progression till then, but. Yeah, yeah, and I think it can be maybe discouraging in the beginning, um, but yeah, through the whole year, when you look from the start to the end, um, there's really drastic improvements for pretty much all the websites that we looked at. And so one of the things I want to, you know, we talked about the traffic and the traffic sources for a lot of these. Most of these sites, their organic traffic was their primary traffic source, and that usually means Google. And speaking of Google, one of the things I thought was really interesting, uh, What's New in Publishing had an article um, out and this is news across multiple uh, publications now and it's that Google is proposing changes um, that will break ad blockers in the Chrome browser so we saw last year uh, and then you know globally this year uh, Google introducing ad blockers inside of Chrome so Chrome has ad blockers built in if there's websites that are violating the coalition for better ads advertisements Google will actually block those they're things like pop-ups and you know, autoplay video and that sort of thing. Um, but now Google is proposing changes that will actually make it so that uh, third-party ad blockers that block all the ads on a page mm -hmm. will actually not work uh, inside of Chrome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and that is something that a lot of um, developers are concerned about just because um, they see it as Google putting the interests of its own ad business over the browser users, um, whereas you know Google is saying that users will actually have an increased control over their extensions, um, and they should be able to determine what's in front of them. Um, so you kind of have both sides of the argument there. Um, so I don't, I don't know how that's going to go. <laughs> it's funny because I think you know, as a digital publisher, um, you definitely are on the side of like we need to stop ad blocking and people right. shouldn't be allowed to block ads. Mm -hmm. I'm providing my content for free. I should be allowed right. to monetize it how I want. But if for one second as a publisher you can take that hat off and say, you know, how many times has Google dictated something about the ecosystem that you haven't liked, whether it's mm -hmm. the way that search works or the way that, you know, ads work. I mean just in general the way that their ad blocker works. I mean I'm with I'm with you. Autoplay video ads and pop-up ads, those types of things are super annoying. Mm -hmm. But shouldn't we be basing this this stuff on information and data rather than just some survey information, which is essentially mm -hmm. how they built that. And so right. they've really dictated this to both users and publishers to a certain extent. I just wonder, I guess, partially on this is, you know, Google, 60%, I think 65% of um, the market share for browsers goes to Chrome. And essentially, Google is protecting, I mean, you could argue that they're protecting their ad business here by doing this. Right. And so um, I think it's fairly interesting. Um, it's a bold move at a time wherever Google's under a lot of scrutiny mm -hmm. um, with things like GDPR, which is really the next story, which is Google just got fined um, $57 million. Uh, yeah. by the CNIL for GDPR infractions. Did you happen to see that? I did, yeah. And so um, the CNIL is a French administrative um, body that... Of course it is. Uh, yeah, of course, you know, the French. Um, but they um, were concerned that Google wasn't being um, 
as transparent with how they were collecting data as they should be in that um, it's hard to find, um, you have to go through a bunch of hoops basically to figure out um, how they're collecting your data and how it's being used. And they uh, um, slapped Google's wrist pretty hard for that. Well, I, I agree with you. They, 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 they definitely slapped Google's wrist. I will argue that it was not very hard. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, not for Google. <laughs> it is less than 1% of 4% of, I think, one day's worth of their ad revenue or something along those lines. Right. I, I remember seeing that someplace. But $57 million is mm -hmm. really nothing to Google. Mm -hmm. um, when GDPR was uh, originally uh, constructed, the thought behind it was that legislators in the EU were going to use it as a tool to come after Google and Facebook. And the reality of it is they actually made those platforms stronger because mm -hmm. they didn't understand that Google and Facebook, because of the way that they control the vast majority of the way that the industry has to operate, they can actually set the standards by mm -hmm. which everyone else has to comply. Now, with the CNIL thing, I, I was reading into it a little bit deeper, and it looks like what they got Google for was really um, cross data across multiple sites and, mm -hmm. and tools and platforms and um, like just not getting consent at each layer of those things when a user does another trip as opposed to just saying like broadly we have all mm -hmm. of your data, you have the ability to delete it, do whatever you want with it. Um, but it is a very small fine. Um, it is the first chance of them getting Google. They didn't get them for, so I saw that you know the article in Digiday was about how you know the industry feels like it's been warned and, mm -hmm. and, and you know publishers wonder if they're next but you know publishers aren't aren't basically violating the thing that Google's being fined for here so you don't have to worry about there being precedent set mm -hmm. uh, for a fine if you're a publisher no one has really been hit yet for um, not complying with the letter of the law which I think is what everybody's most concerned about mm -hmm. Because right now, the way that the law was originally written, when you come to a site, you have to say, I give you consent to basically show me personalized ads. Right. And the way it works right now is really just like, hey, we're going to serve you personalized ads. Is that okay? Right. Accept. Yeah, you accept, and if you click out of it, then it just assumes that you accept. <laughs> right. And that's, that's a big part of it, right, mm -hmm. is that GDPR basically says you can't just, doing nothing doesn't mean you can serve them ads. Right. And um, no one has gotten hit for that yet. I, I think if you're a, a digital publisher, the chances of you being the target of that mm -hmm. are really, 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 really slim. Mm -hmm. But it does beg the question of, um, you know, what is going to happen next with this? Is, is this something that the entire industry, industry is going to get pulled into mm -hmm. complying with? Or, you know, I mean, there's a lot of power at Google and Facebook, and they really could... Um, basically neuter this law to where it's not really going to have a lot of power other than being able to, you know, do fines for platforms like this every now and then. Right, yeah. Um, the article did mention, um, you know, they went after the big guy first as kind of an example for everyone else, um, but publishers um, really aren't um, to be targeted. But I did think that this quote by... Um, there was an independent publishing consultant and he used to work for um, News UK. I'm going to butcher his name, but it's um, <laughs> Alessandro de Zanch. Zanch. Um, it just, he talks about how um, too many publishers are looking at consent as a way to rebuild. They aren't looking at consent um, as a way to rebuild their business models. They're just looking at 
at it as a way to like a box to tick in order to keep doing what they've always been doing. So yeah. like rather than adapting and growing, it's um, just like ticking a box. Yeah, to say that, okay, we did it, but like I'm still gonna do the exact same thing, which I think is, um, I, I don't know. I think if this is the way things are going, it's better to um, go with the flow rather than keep like, cause if something big happens, you're gonna be left behind, I guess, is my kind of um, take on that. I think one of the things that I think is going to drive a lot of this is, well, I think we're going to see trends in the EU before we'll see them anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, I think just in general, privacy is considered, uh, a high, it's a it's more of a premium in the EU than mm-hmm. it is here. Um, I also think there's a generational thing as well. I do, mm-hmm. I do think that most consumers have a very bad understanding of what internet privacy really is. Right. And so um, I... I I think that we're, in a lot of cases, we're spending a lot of time worried about um, things like personalized ads, Mm -hmm. and that's really kind of like a red herring as it relates to internet privacy Mm -hmm. in a lot of respects. Um, But that being said, um, I don't know that the future of the internet is that we take away the ability for advertisers to send people personalized ads, because we generally have learned over time that that's actually how advertisers, consumers, everyone gets like more out of it they're less mm-hmm. annoyed like everything works better whenever we have this mm-hmm. so i'm not sure that this is really where in terms of everyone inside of the ecosystem like it's where everyone's best interests are aligned but mm-hmm. i do think that there are a lot of really shady practices and bad practices mm-hmm. from all these parties involved that could probably be uh improved consumers on the side of you know ad blocking essentially mm-hmm. stealing from publishers you're stealing content right um from the publisher side um, what is it that you're doing? Um, wh- what is it that you're um, extracting from your, your audience that they don't know about? Um, and then from the platform standpoint, um, essentially, and then all the middlemen, you know, how much are you taking out of these relationships and how much value are you adding mm-hmm. and that sort of thing? Um, and speaking of you know the future and mm-hmm. the way things are heading, uh, I thought what's new. In, we've got two what's new in publishing articles here, but one is it says AI is the new printing press, and here's what that means for online publishers. Did you have a chance to read that article? I or did. did you look at it. Yeah, yeah, I looked through it. Um, I kind of like this idea of comparing it to the printing press because you know nothing's been as monumental <laughs> as the printing press really, and um, this new wave of technology that's come through basically. Um, it cha- it's changing everything, just like the printing press did. And I think one of the things that's really interesting about AI, and this is obviously a space that you and I are in quite, quite, right. um, quite often, and it's the idea of per- using AI for personalization. Mm-hmm. And while I think, like, let's cut out the fact that, like, think about AI or algorithms in the way that Facebook has really kind of like gotten a bad rap for mm-hmm. using those things, where you're basically like giving someone more and more of what they want, and mm-hmm. you almost create like an echo chamber for someone right um when you think outside of that and you think more about like how do you personalize an experience for someone so that they can um consume information or access something in a preferred method so you and i may get like let's say you and i both go to websites you like videos and i hate videos you Mm -hmm. get a video of the news i get to read the news Mm -hmm. um that's a really interesting way to think about like ai personalizing Mm -hmm. experience but what i thought was really interesting is um we did a uh, recent uh, strategy steering se- session um, uh, here at Azoic, and one of the things that we thought was really interesting is when we got into personalization, we started asking a lot of publishers, what does personalization mean? Like, what do you think that actually looks like? Like, what would change for users? 
and it is all over the map. Mm -hmm. No one had the same thing, like no one really agreed. Um, and in fact, uh, one of the largest publishers on the planet, their response to it was, we're not really sure what it looks like, we just know that it's important. <laughs> That's comforting. <laughs> no one knows what they want. <laughs> like, is it is it the menu? Is it right. the font? If you're, if you're um, cosmopolitan, are you cool with um, your font changing from user to user? Or is the Roboto number 14 medium font, is that the cosmopolitan font and that's right. non-negotiable? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you start t stepping on the toes of branding, um, but you know, if more people are reading or looking at your content, what you, there's sacrifices, I guess, maybe you'd have to be willing to make. Um, and I think a lot of publishers are f trying to figure out what that means for them. And if you think about it from the standpoint of my first example of like, maybe the ideal version of this is like, you like videos, so you get videos and I get mm -hmm. text and I get text, or maybe I like videos in the evening when I'm at home, mm -hmm. uh, but I like text during the day when I'm at work. Um, even if we were to do something like that, um, Man, if you're if you're a publisher, now you have to create like maybe audio is mixed there too. Like right. now you have to three create three versions of the same content. Mm -hmm. Publishing is already expensive, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, when you think about all the investments to do really good content, so um, it's really interesting. I think AI is going to change the space if you're a publisher, and I think personalization is a part of that. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know that we've yet defined exactly um, what it is that we want to use that for in terms of publishing. Right, yeah, the article said, um, you know, people today, they want instant gratification. Um, that's how technology is developed. Um, you know, we, we ask a question, we look it up if we don't know the answer. Um, we want that um, instant, yeah, gratification. And the more that publishers and companies are kind of looking into that, um, there's data that shows that when you embrace this kind of real-time responsiveness that um, you see the user engagement go up yeah. by double or triple. Um, and this article even went so far as to say if you're not leveraging AI, you're leaving money on the table and users in the dark. So um, I think it's really where um, everything's kind of going is people want personalization, but like you said, we have yet to figure out what that even means. Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, to that point, we were talking about that tripling, speaking back to our, our first point, and, and we, I try not to spend too much time in this sort of thing, but, I mean, that is the other thing that all 20 of those publishers in that first study right. had in common is they all, they all leveraged Azoic, which mm -hmm. does use AI to essentially move right. different combinations of ads around on the page. Yeah. And there's a lot of other things you can do with it, but mm -hmm. um, that is one element of it, and that is the idea behind it, is that you can maximize user experiences by learning from different visitors. And I do mm -hmm. think that there's probably a lot of different ways that we can apply that sort of uh, thinking to um, just our content in general, right. if you're a publisher. And so the very last thing that we wanted to address today was kind of the uh, <laughs> our regular updates on AMP. So. Mm -hmm. Um, a writer from Search Engine Land uh, posted a new article, Accelerated Mobile Pages, aka AMP, Are They Worth It? And um, just kind of an update on the, the uh, AMP project. And I don't know that there's a lot here other than the fact that, um, you know, if you don't believe the conspiracy theories of like AMP is secretly a ranking factor, which I really <laughs> don't believe that it is, it would be. Um, 
I think Google would be putting themselves into some degree of antitrust, having to worry about mm-hmm. that a little bit. Um, but uh, it web web page speed is you know a small ranking factor, but the way that we've measured it, it doesn't seem to be that you know an AMP page is getting priority because it's like lightning faster than a normal fast website or mm-hmm. even medium speed website. So I don't know that there's any real ranking benefit uh, of AMP unless you're a news publisher and you have an opportunity for the carousel. But there are a lot of really interesting things that relates to um, AMP being applied to open web standards, which is something I've heard Google talk a lot about here recently. Um, which is basically that Google will allow publishers to implement a lot of the uh, effects of AMP and then receive the benefits that AMP pages do, i.e. in the carousel, the lightning bolt, all that kind of stuff, without actually having to implement AMP because uh, AMP does have a lot of drawbacks, which I think is the the main thing that publishers have probably experienced so far that have tried it. Right. Um, Yeah, there there are a few caveats. article mentions you know it only works if users click on the AMP version of the web page um, and it shows that the AMP library can um, decrease the number of server requests to fetch a document um, and it's not always served it's not implemented correctly so there's definitely some things still being figured out um, but it's I guess probably going to be different for everyone do you, have you so I have a question before you came and worked here mm-hmm. where you are obviously like entrenched in all things publishing and hear all kinds of different opinions about AMP mm-hmm. um, were you aware of what AMP was did you understand what it was did you when you saw like a search result and saw the little lightning bolt did you realize you were going to get like a cached Google version of that page well I feel like I probably am not a good example because I just finished my web design and development certificate and so that was something that we definitely covered was that um, that's kind of where development's going so um, if I hadn't taken that class I wouldn't know anything about AMP Um, but yeah I mean that's we learned a, like a, just a little snippet of it because it was a lot of like kind of the history of um, web development and how to do it kind of old school so you understand the basics. If you search something on the internet, mm-hmm. which I'm guessing you do from time to time Sometimes. on a mobile device, um, if you are going through the results and you see the lightning bolt, do you click? Are you like I'm going to get that content faster and you click on that one? No, I usually just do what I always have done. <laughs> I guess I'm a creature of habit. <laughs> um, if I think about it, I will, but I don't look for it necessarily. So as, as much of a critic of AMP as I am, um, and I that just doesn't change the fact that I'm a hard, harsh critic of AMP, uh, I do click on the AMP results mm-hmm. um, as long as it's like one of the first ones that I see. I'll click mm-hmm. on an AMP result versus a non-AMP result mm-hmm. because I do know that it's gonna, like I'm gonna get it super fast. Right. And, and actually this is like a drawback of AMP that I actually appreciate, which is basically like usually an AMP version of the page is like way simpler, mm. like it has mm-hmm. like, way less design it's almost like the apple reader version of the page mm-hmm. and because amp strips out a lot of like the stuff um that web publishers really like that make mm. their sites unique yeah <laughs> um, uh, but in many cases like when i'm searching something i just want the content and yeah um, so i do actually just want the apple reader version which um maybe speaks to the thing we were talking about before about personalization right maybe i should always just get the apple reader version of something yeah, yeah, because I um, not only do I not click on just the AMP page, I generally open about five tabs 
of whatever I've looked up and I try to grab articles that might have different opinions or like different snippets of information the other one doesn't have and I don't care if they're AMP or not or I don't care if they're at the top or not so I'm kind of a bad example probably for (laughs) what users do and what they shouldn't do. Um, I think that's the the thing though is like you and I clearly on that topic have very different user behavior. Right. And um, I think that's that's what we continually find across the web is that like Mm -hmm. all users like browse things completely differently right and um, without lots and lots of data and lots and lots of visitors it's really hard to say like what different people want yeah um, you know the, the bet you know we've talked about this forever it would be really fortunate if there was a way to say for this user give them an amp page for this user mm-hmm. don't give them an amp page right. and that would really be the best way to do it or this person's on a slow internet connection. They're on a 2G, 3G right. connection. Give them an AMP page. This this visitor is coming from, they're, they're on Wi-Fi on their phone. Mm-hmm. Like They have a very fast connection. There's no reason to give them a like dumbed-down version of the page. Right. It's cached by Google and not even on the publisher's site. I think that makes more sense, if anything, is just you know based on their connection. And then if you know they always have the option to load the other type of page, but... Um, I would think that it'd make more sense to do that rather than, um, I guess, focus on making every page and every website um, AMP and have that be the first thing that pop up. And I'm sure that this will be a subject that we continue (laughs) to talk about in the future. I don't think AMP is really going anywhere. Mm. It's also not really catching fire the way that I'm sure Google uh, would would like. Mm -hmm. And so I think you're going to see more PWAs, more Google opening up open web standards for things like AMP so that publishers can get a lot of the benefits without having to implement it, um, but I think they'll probably, it's fair to say there's more to come. Mm-hmm. And that pretty much wraps it up for the subjects that we had today to talk about, Whitney. Thanks for, for hanging out and yeah. um, and uh, taking the load off of poor Shelby, who I know. I'm sure she had a fever the other day. She looked oh, not great. Yeah, right. Well, at least she has the weekend now as well to kind of sleep up and catch up and get better so um shelby hopefully you're feeling better and uh we'll see you soon so we'll catch you guys next time on another episode of the publisher lab hopefully uh shelby will be recovered by then but if not uh whitney i think you've proven in two two separate podcasts here recently you're more than um willing and capable of stepping up and and joining us on the show um, in fact, I mean, who knows? Maybe you, you both will put me out of a job here soon and I can, um, I can just do Inside the Publisher Lab. Maybe. Yeah, it'll just be Girls Podcast. <laughs> so we want to thank you all for joining us on uh, – uh, I get the I always get the names. I know. Up. I always say Publisher Lab when we and do Inside you, the Publisher Lab. I know. Lab and then, They're too similar. You, you know what you're listening to, everyone. You know. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's the Publisher Lab. We want to thank you for listening, and hopefully we'll catch you next time.